Welcome to The Wrap Up, our podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap, and welcome back to my co-host, The Wrap's assistant managing editor, Adam Chitwood. Hey, Adam. Hello. Good to be back on a very, very busy week. Yeah. Lots to talk about. Uh, We have got the big live primetime hearings about the January 6th insurrection taken over network television. We've got Emmy season underway. And oh, yeah, one of Disney's top executives just got fired. That's right. On this week's show, we're talking about the impressive box office of Top Gun Maverick, turmoil in the Washington Post newsroom, and the January 6th hearings airing in prime time. Uh, we're also talking to the Raps senior TV reporter, Brandon Katz, about Disney executive Peter Rice's shocking ouster. Uh, and later in the show, Sharon, Sharon sits down with Gaslit showrunner Robbie Pickering for an insightful interview about that star's Watergate series. The news cycle truly never stops. So let's get into it after some words from this week's sponsor, A&E. For your Emmy consideration, Andy's Secrets of Playboy. Over 18 million people watch what critics call an explosive docuseries that features bombshell, never-before-heard interviews revealing the hidden truths behind the Playboy empire. The real story is told by the people who were there, like former director of Playmate Promotions Mickey Garcia and past girlfriends of Hugh Hefner, including Holly Madison and Sandra Theodore. A&E's original documentary, Secrets of Playboy, for your Emmy consideration. Okay, so it seems like absolutely everyone who's anyone saw Top Gun Maverick when it opened in theaters (laughs) on Memorial Day weekend. I am one of them. I had the best time I've had in a theater in a very, very long time. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I thought that when I saw it at CinemaCon, which was a few weeks before, which was probably a month before everybody else, and it, it and I'm glad to see that I that what I thought was going to be like a big hit is is really a big hit. It's just really entertaining, right? Yeah. I mean, Tom Cruise coming back as Maverick is in itself pretty awesome. The guy looks amazing, and now the the sequel has already made $500 million worldwide. It's going to be Paramount's highest grossing film domestically since 2011. It did $160 million in its first weekend. It did another $86 million at the box office, which is a really small drop. And it's worth talking about that this film is not being driven by Gen Z moviegoers, right? So as our own Jeremy Fuster has reported, Paramount is reporting demographics of um, the audience being like 55% of it being over the age of 35. That's that's huge. Yes, this is a true word of mouth hit. It is a mm-hmm. shot of adrenaline in the arm of theater owners, studios everywhere. It is a sign of hope and promise that adult movies can and will do very well at the box office. Uh, if you give them the right thing. I mean, this thing got an A-plus cinema score. People walking out of the theater were walking like they were walking on air and wiping yeah. away tears, I should say. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it was really well done. It sort of hit all the notes. The critics didn't love it, but it doesn't really matter. It was, It's a movie that I think young people can see and older people can see, and you, you want to go in a group, and you want to see it now because people are talking about it, so... That that it's cool to know that the industry can still produce a piece of entertainment like that. Yeah, and it'll be very interesting to see you, uh, you know, what kind of Top Gun Maverick effect this may or may not have on the industry going forward. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the answer: make very entertaining movies. That's <laughs> yes. the ticket. That's right. <laughs> 
All right. So moving on to a news story this week that uh, really caught our attention. Reporter Dave Weigel was suspended by the Washington Post for retweeting a polarizing tweet. Uh, his suspension is for a month and without pay. Weigel reportedly apologized and the chief spokesperson for the paper issued a statement to CNN saying editors have made clear to the staff that the tweet was repre reprehensible and demeaning language or actions like that will not be tolerated. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm, I mean, we're not going to get into a big argument about this, but it wasn't just a uh, polarizing tweet. It was, a, it was a very sexist tweet. And the tweet was, now I'm repeating it. Every girl is bi. You just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual. I mean, it's, it's a really stupid tweet. The reporter Dave Weigel retweeted it, but what, what's notable to me about it is not just as like some dumb guy who should know better because he's a senior reporter at the Washington post and impulse control is really required if you want to be a reporter. You can't be on social media and just blurt out or give vent to every single feeling you have because it hurts your credibility. And speaking as the editor-in-chief of our organization, you represent that news organization at all times, wherever you are. So anyway, but what's notable about this is that this thing has blown up into this insane um civil war in the newsroom of the Washington Post where everybody's talking about this crap instead of talking about the news, like, say, whether the president committed a seditious act, in, you know, which will be on display in congressional hearings this week. But I think it's, to me, a real example of how not to handle a situation. Like, the thing blew way out of control. The guy retweeted something stupidly. He was called out by a colleague, Felicia Sonmez. Um, I should say, not that it matters at all, but I did work at the Washington Post for eight years, have a lot of love for that paper. I've had uh, seen other colleagues write things like, the paper that I used to work for doesn't exist. It's really just what all newsrooms everywhere are dealing with, which is the, the hazards of social media. So now we're learning that Felicia Sanmez, the reporter who has been, uh, who called out the tweet to begin with, but didn't back down. She kept going and going, and I think uh, criticizing the paper, criticizing her colleagues, criticizing people who stood up to support Dave Weigel, which I'm not even sure why you would do that. The whole thing could have just been Dave Weigel apologizing, even a colleague calling him out saying, that's super not cool, and then having a human-to-human -human conversation about it and that really should have been it. Um, and this, these sort of essentially like brush fires over mis, misjudgments and people who are speaking the wrong thing. I think as somebody who's even somebody who was offended by his retweet, it's a waste of time. It doesn't move us forward as a society. It doesn't do anything but destroy the collaborative nature of a newsroom and the respect among colleagues. So I'm going to say on behalf of women, like we have to be able to say, call it out and move on or whether whatever it is you're calling it out, something that's anti-LGBTQ, something that's anti-Black, something that offends you because you're an older white guy, whatever it is, take it, take it, say it, move on. But this blew up into a huge thing. And now look what happened. Now, now, now a reporter who's really good at her job felt the need to leave because I'm sure she feels isolated and under attack. Right. It's just a mess all around. Yeah. So I think these are the hazards. And I do think that newsrooms today, and I, I, I wouldn't exempt our own, although I 
sort of feel like there, but for the grace of God, let's not let it not happen in our newsroom. But I mean, especially big newsrooms like the LA Times, New York Times, those are like, you know, hundreds and in the New York Times case, it's over a thousand people. You're going to have very different opinions, very different points of view, you know, some people argue actually that, that, that it, the points of view are too homogenous, but clearly there are some people who have, and also different ages and different generations now, have different sensitivities around a lot of these cultural issues. I think we have to be um, more forgiving and more willing to just talk stuff out person to person unless we're going to just have these blowups that ultimately get in the way of doing what newspapers have to do, which is report the news and hold people who are in power accountable. We can't do that when we're fighting with each other. So, all right, moving on. On Thursday night, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and most of the cable news networks kicked off their live primetime coverage of the House Select Committee's public hearings on the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. This is an event that committee organizers are framing for maximum impact on TV. Uh, as the rap reported this week, the head, uh, the former head of ABC News, uh, James Goldston, is advising the committee on these hearings. Uh, this is super important. And Adam, are you good? Are you going to be watching this? What do you think? I'll be watching as soon as, uh, assuming my son cooperates and goes to bed when he's supposed to, um, <laughs> I will be watching live. Uh, and I'm incredibly fascinated to see how it plays out. I mean, I think this is important and it's important to capture the public's attention in a way uh, that makes them listen, which is very hard to break through the noise. So I'm very curious to see how this goes. Yeah, I'm supposed to go on for a month. So some of it's going to be during the day. Some of it's going to be during prime time. From what I hear, I've talked to a couple of sources who were working on this, actually, that um, they are preparing some produced packages, like actually, like it's a show. Uh, and there will be footage that has never been seen before. There'll be some witnesses who haven't been heard from publicly before. So um, this is a big opportunity to bring a really important issue in front of the American public and honestly, the world public. It, it, I, what remains to be seen, like you say, Adam, is in a world with so much going on and also this incredibly polarized electorate, how, how many people are going to show up and will people accept what is presented in these hearings. Yeah, this is a, this is an important moment. So all eyes are watching. Yeah, for sure. I'll be watching. <laughs> all right. Next up, uh, it's time for the wax on wax off portion of the show where Sharon gives her thoughts on her favorite person or moment of the week. Sharon, the floor is yours. Why? Thank you so much. So guys, I have been to the con film festival and I am calling it con and not can. Um, and the winner of the Palm d'Or this year is a film that did get picked up for distribution, and I'm going to recommend that everybody see it. It's called Triangle of Sadness, and it's a savage uh, satire of the wealth inequity in our society today. It's by Ruben Ostland. Woody Harrelson has a great cameo as the captain of a massive over-the-top luxury yacht where super wealthy people are spending insane amounts of money and drinking crystal, you know, at all hours of the night. And then Woody, of course, ends up being a socialist slash communist slash anarchist, of course, and ends up in a drunken debate with a Russian billionaire who, by the way, buys the boat 
uh, during the <laughs> during the um, during the, the the sale. Anyway, the whole thing goes to shit. They all end up on an island. It's like Gilligan's Island meets Lord of the Flies, and it's laugh out loud funny, but also savagely awful. Um, every character is very well drawn, whether it's the Filipino woman who's head of the toilets, who becomes the leader on the island because she knows how to fish, or whether it's the uh, actual runway models who uh, around whom the, the story is originally built. So that's my wax on. Triangle of Sadness, probably out in the fall. Definitely see it. My wax off is takes us back to the Washington Post, the paper that I love very much and that got my helped me get my start as a journalist. Um, social media is tearing that newsroom apart this week, and uh, social media is not on the on balance helping our democracy. I'll say at the same time, newsrooms across the country, big newsrooms are becoming somewhat unmanageable, and I my heart goes out to the executive editors of all of these big newsrooms, whether it's Sally Busby over at the Washington Post or whether it's Joe Kahn who's now running the LA Times or my friend Karen Meredith who's running the LA Times that's faced his own revolts. Um, people are, I mean, journalists are raucous types and individualists in the best of times. Amplified by social media, it's becoming pert near impossible to manage this, um, this, the, these, this group, these people as groups of people. We're going to have to come up with some kind of uh, modus operandi that will allow newsrooms to function and for mutual respect to be restored among uh, people with differences of opinion. And that's my wax off. That's it for wax on wax off. Next up, we're diving into this week's feature segments, one of them on Peter Rice's ouster. But before we get to that, we're going to step back in history a bit. Gaslit is a new limited series on stars. It takes a look at the Watergate scandal from a perspective you may not be expecting. Uh, some of those that history hasn't remembered as well, including the outspoken Arkansas socialite wife of Nixon campaign manager, John Mitchell, Martha Mitchell, um, as well as Mo Dean, the wife of Nixon lawyer, John Dean. The series is heading into its finale this Sunday night at 8 p.m. It stars Julia Roberts as Martha, Sean Penn as John Mitchell, Dan Stevens as John Dean, and Betty Gilpin as Mo Dean. And Sharon spoke with the showrunner and executive producer, Robbie Pickering, about the show. So let's listen in. Welcome, Robbie. I'm excited to talk to you this week, especially with everything going on in Washington. So uh, it's a good week to talk. Good week to talk, right? Your show, Gaslight, takes a look at Watergate. And honestly... I'm like a child of Watergate. Like I became a journalist in the era of Woodward and Bernstein. I, I didn't know anything about this whole Martha Mitchell story or, yeah. um, you know, how she was the, apparently the first person to call out the Nixon administration for breaking the law. Publicly, so, yeah. Publicly, yeah. That's super ballsy or crazy. I don't know because sometimes no. people get end up dead when they do stuff like that. But um, yeah. Yeah. So let's just start with why, uh, how did you come across this aspect of Watergate and why did you want to tell that story? Well, I, I, I come from Texas, a small town, and I, I'm a child of very evangelical conservative parents. So I've always been fascinated with movement conservatism. And I can still remember when I was very young, uh, Nixon's funeral on TV and my mom was crying and, uh, I asked her what was going on, why she was so upset. And she turned to me and she said, 
he was a misunderstood man. He was a great man. And the liberal wow. did this to him. The liberals wow. tore him down. And uh, it's just strange to believe that a, a woman in 1990, I think two or three, whenever um, uh, Nixon died, was still that, had that kind of attachment to him. But she did. And so I just, it started like kind of a lifelong fascination with Nixon. And the more you pour over Nixon, the more you realize that, um, you know, I, you know, I love movies like Oliver Stone's Nixon and all that and all the president's men. But the mm -hmm. more you look at Nixon, the more you realize it was the people around Nixon who kind of made Nixon and, and the mm -hmm. people around him who kind of carried on um, some of the corrupt practices of Nixon and the culture war sure. kind of stuff into the mm -hmm. future, into the future of the Republican Party. Um, so I always wanted to do a show um that was different from kind of the boomer narratives I, was, I had seen uh, uh, kind of the big Oliver Stone heroes and villains version of Watergate and more, and a more one that uh, like a more mundane buffoonish one, <laughs> like I was reading in all the history, but huh. nobody ever wanted to do it. And then Slowburn came along and really centered Martha in the story. Uh -huh. And it was just kind of crazy for me to hear because I, I, I'd spent my life, you know, learning about Nixon and only knew a little about Martha because most of the books, they just kind of sideline her. Um, and the more I found out about Martha, the more I saw a story in it, you know, and her marriage to John. And at the same time, juxtaposing that with John Dean and Mo Dean and their marriage. Yeah, really interesting. And she, she was not a name that I heard growing up, you know, yeah. and I heard Watergate in my house because I had huge fights with my father about it because he thought Nixon was a pretty okay guy and I was yeah. like what is wrong with you <laughs> uh, and, and um, you know so and, and then a lot of that kind of replays through various you know administrations as they roll forward yeah so we're witnessing it right now yeah and we're seeing it right now so all right well let's talk about that a little bit how, how do you feel so we're talking on the eve of the uh, January 6th hearings that are about to start be part of the our fabric media fabric is going to be Not on. The eve. I, don't they start tonight? Yeah, the, yeah. So this is going up on Friday. So yeah, the oh, eve, wow. that makes it the eve. Yeah. This, this evening, even this evening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing we're recording this on Thursday. Pot's going up Friday. And we're going to be hearing this for the next month. And I'm sure people like you and me are going to be riveted. And I really hope a lot more people watch it, but, um, and then you've got your finale coming up. So I, I'm just wondering kind of like, how is this, how are you experiencing this in terms of like, you're watching the news and then like your work life is somehow echoing. Well, I've been experiencing on. that for, I mean, when, when I <laughs> recently, my mom was, cause my mom loves uh, the show and I was talking to her about it and she, she was talking about, well, I never knew they were so corrupt and I never knew they were this and that and oh, how horrible they are. And I go, I go mom, wow. you know, the show's really, you know, equally about the Trump administration. And mm -hmm. she just, she just wouldn't listen to it. You know, she didn't want to listen to it, but mm -hmm. uh, that kind of indicates the way it felt. Um, mm -hmm. I felt this way for, for a long time and not only this administration, but the Clinton administration with all their scandals and the Reagan administration with the Ron Contra, mm -hmm. you see this stuff and, and Putin right now in, in Russia, you see, you know, kind of this 
charismatic figure at the top surrounded by people who are just willing to throw themselves under the bus, throw their careers under the bus, go against their own morals to impress this person, to reap the material rewards of their position. Um, and, and I think it's very relatable. I think it's, um, you know, the first question we asked all the writers in the room was when we interviewed them was name a quality of the characters you see in yourself but it cannot be a good quality. It has to be an absolutely shameful quality. Mm -hmm. My favorite shows are like Larry Sanders show or the BBC. Mm -hmm. You're just, you really, you know, sometimes I look at Artie in the Larry Sanders show and think, oh man, what a pathetic jerk. But at the same time, I'm thinking at the back of my head, I'm thinking, ooh, I did something kind of like that one time. I was that needy or that emotional or that, mm. that willing to please somebody um, to get a little ahead, you know? And I, I think the same applies here. And that's what I really wanted to bring to this period. And that's how I think you make this period so modern, feel modern. So we're going through the hearings right now. And yet yeah, echoes uh, what we saw, you know, with the hearings under Nixon and a lot of the behavior of Trump and a lot of the behavior under the people under him echoes mm -hmm. what we saw under Nixon. But that's not a shock to me. Mm -hmm. I, I think people always talk about history repeating itself as if history is doing the repeating. It's really <laughs> more we are we are the same in any era. We have the same uh, flaws as as people and the same emptiness that we want to fill inside ourselves through, you know, money or success or whatever drives these people to do these awful things. Well, it, yeah, but how, how do you feel then? I, I noticed obviously, and it's fair to do so, you were making some equivalencies between administrations. I don't personally feel like every administration is equally corrupt or that no. every politician is just as bad as the next. I, I, and I do, I'm, the daily fear, like so many of us, that we're teetering on the edge of losing our democracy because one of our major political parties has lost its ability to identify wh where the moral line is, and and that no, is yeah, given, I, like caved caved into sort of like the need for power, essentially. Like I'm that. so glad you said that because I feel like sometimes when people say, you know, well they're all corrupt or they're all all politicians lie and stuff like that, it's it's a way of letting yourself off the hook for really finding out. Who does you know, do you know where I would hear that the most? And of course I, I was a former Washington post reporter for eight years. So where would that. you hear that? I hear that from, I heard to hear that from young Republican operatives who were yeah. trying to get me to um, bite on a story that they'd be pitching me. And I would say, no, actually not everybody lies straight up to my yeah. face and not everybody does these things, but it was useful. I, th I thought it was just like this young generation that was coming up around, um, you know, Iraq war, Bush years, um, and they, they believed it and it was useful for them to get done what they felt they needed to get done. Well, yeah, you, you, you see this a lot in scandals. I mean, I, I mean, don't even take a political scandal, take the Houston Astros cheating scandal, right? Every scandal is an inflection point of a bunch of people who, have been, you know, LBJ lied and then Nixon did it. Mm -hmm. And you see this commonality in every scandal of the reason these people are doing it is because they'll point to somebody else who did it and they mm -hmm. feel that everybody does it. 
and therefore they really doing anything wrong. And that's, right. that's very human too. I mean, we, it, people do that a lot, but, but it is, it is the commonality in all these things that, you know, this terrible behavior you're engaging in, you project on other people and it gives you permission structure to do these things. You know, mm -hmm. it gives you, you know, there's, there's a scene in the, in the pilot of, um, of uh, Gaslit where John Mitchell is convincing John Dean to do these things. And mm -hmm. he basically says, you know, you think the other side doesn't do this and that, you know, we're just trying to compete. And, you know, the other thing they do is the, 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 the means, the, the ends justify the means, you know, that's another way. Of right. That, that's a, that's a classic. That's, that's a classic. A, and that's so, a classic. you know, of course, Nixon, when he's talking about, you know, bugging the White House and things like that, well, LBJ did it. And you think what I'm doing is horrible with the CIA and with Vietnam. God knows what LB, LBJ did or, or Kennedy did or, you know, and and it's always an excuse. But no, I don't I, I don't believe I've, I, I think that's actually where I hear that heard that the most growing up. That and still hear it. All mm -hmm. politics, all politicians are liars. Is back home, yeah, um, because they're justifying Trump, you mm -hmm. know. And and you know where else you hear that in Russia is everybody's lying. At least Putin, we know mm -hmm. he's a liar. You know. Yeah, I mean those. Yeah, I mean for me in media, I, you're a lot closer to the people who are real. Or they say all journalists are liars. Journalists just lie, or they, we, all, we all have agendas. And I'm like, well, actually, no, there are some, yeah. But actually, most people. And the New York Times is all they filled the blank, and I and I work at the New York Times. Um, actually, no, most of the reporters, the New York Times, are just trying to do a good job. They're yeah. just trying to get the news. They're just actually trying to tell the truth and get the facts. And it's actually, and sometimes, uh, sometimes there's a reporter who loses their way, and sometimes there's somebody who is drawn too close to the flame of like fame or whatever, whatever it may be. But for the most part, everybody who's showing up there. And I know that, and I'm also from, I'm from the Midwest. And I do yeah. know that when I go home, I hear the same thing. It's like, Oh, they're all. You know. It's really upsetting. It's really upsetting. But again, it's, it's like, I think. We're talking, by the way, like two super coastal elites right now. I hope nobody who's not on the coast Us? hears this. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I, I I'm not from here, and neither are you. So. Yeah, I know, but I've, well, but I've lived. Well, at least, I've been, I've at least you're not coastal elites from the coast, you know. We're, I am. I'm on the. I'm in Santa Monica. I don't get much more coastal than, than that. But. Well, no, but you're, you were born on the coast. <laughs> I wasn't born on the coast, but I just, but I, you know, I've, I have these debates with my family. The way it sounds like. You do, and um, I'm not so talented to write a series like Gaslit. But let me. I, <laughs> I think here, that here's the thing, though, with Gaslit. I think that the left has everybody. What I think about Gaslit is that everybody has this propensity to act like this, right? Sure, absolutely. I, you know, when we're writing John Dean, we're writing me. We're consciously writing. I'm writing me ten years ago, coming mm -hmm. to LA. Mm. wanting to do something big yeah. mm. and not and writing scripts i know i shouldn't be writing you know i can relate to all the when i'm writing liddy giving his operation gemstone pitch <laughs> i'm writing me giving tv pitches where i don't oh recognize the, where i don't recognize that it's it's bombing so so <laughs> they're, 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 we, that's the way you get inside these characters and what i will say is that the propensity for this kind of corruption is within all of us but there is a unique strand of it in movement conservatism that started with Nixon and mm. is, and it kind of, you know, I hoped had its apotheosis or it's, it's pinnacle with Trump, 
but it, it, it is a unique cancer in the Republican Party right now. That doesn't mean that it will never happen on the left or that we don't have an equal propensity for it. It's just wrong to say that they're equal in 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 magnitude. I'm glad, well, I'm glad you're saying that. I mean, I think there's a, there is a desperation that is driving it as well among in the leadership who understands the demographics of this country are just fundamentally suck, sapping their ability to hold on to power legitimately so yeah. that's going and that's going to continue to drive this kind of alternate reality where it's like guns don't kill people mental health and doors exactly. kill people or whatever it is just like where you're so or or, or you're going to like shove anti-abortion rights like you know killing abortion rights down the throats of you know 65 percent of the population it's like that's it, it, it's all it's, happening it's, it is all happening and i don't know where it ends and well, let me just go back. I want to talk about your show. So let's yeah. let's not talk about the end of our democracy, which is depressing, and I think about it way too much anyway. I think about but, it every day too. <laughs> yeah, I know. And 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 I and at least your show is um, giving us a, a mirror, you know, some kind of reflection to look at. But tell me about your take on Martha Mitchell, and um, so fun to see Julia Roberts like taking it to the mat with this character. Was she just like crazy? Is Martha? Yeah, just so crazy. She's, she, but she's Martha, just, Martha Mitchell, and, and, and therefore fearless. <laughs> yeah, she's a woman I really admire, but she's a woman who, if I was at a party, I, <laughs> I, I would be severely annoyed by, and I would be like, "Please, I, we can't be here with Martha anymore. She's just driving me crazy." <laughs> but I, I think that's what makes her interesting. I, I'm really, a, I mean, I've always written conservative women because I think they're, um, mm -hmm. this might insult some viewers, but I think they're like punk rock, but for fascism, you know, I think there's like a <laughs> duality okay. that is so interesting about conservative women. And I grew up around conservative women. Like Phil I, Schlafly, like who? Like, yeah, yeah. Like Phil Schlafly, like uh, Sarah Palin, like, Sarah Palin, uh, Michelle okay. Bachman, like you want to root for them because it's 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 a woman, it's a woman doing all this, and that's punk rock, you know. But also, like, ah, she's you know, she wants to get rid of Roe v. Wade and all, you know. It's like, I don't know. For me, for a child of movement conservatism like Reaganism, I don't I don't know if it would be it, it if it would be different from somebody who was born post Sarah Palin, but like. For me, it, it was very exciting and very weird to see it. And, you know, like church ladies I grew up with finally having all this power and having, you know, becoming populist voices. So in, in any case, I just have a sick fascination with it and I love writing them. And I also love that Martha, you know, my favorite uh, female characters in, in um TV is probably Amy Jellico from Enlightened, you know, mm, and, yeah. and I love her because she's she's just what she is. She isn't she isn't clearly the hero. There are so many moments in Enlightened where you're like, oh, is she the hero or the villain? Is she doing something extremely intelligent or extremely stupid? What is what is happening with her? And mm. and you have that kind of latitude with male characters in, in in any variety of TV or movies, but you rarely see that with female characters. I mean, I found pitching other projects and doing other projects in town, you always had to know exactly if the woman is a female, or, or sorry, woman is a female, a woman is a hero or a villain. Mm -hmm. 
You mm-hmm. have to know that she's smarter than everybody in the room. You mm-hmm. have to know this. You have to know that she's not crazy. You know, that she's actually sane. And and Martha wasn't, she wasn't the smartest person in the room. She wasn't the dumbest person in the room. She was a villain sometimes. She was a hero sometimes. And and you know what? That's how, how she's heroes, messy. She's super yeah, messy. The, the heroes are messy. And and kind of the kind of the point of, you know, coming back around to this fear for democracy stuff, you know. With the show actually, and reading about Nixon and, and this period in history actually gives me a lot of hope because, um, you know, yes, the, the horrible thing is that the capacity to be complicit in awful things can come from the best of us, right? The, that, that capacity is in the best of us. It's in, it's in, you know, it's in people in Congress, people in the Senate, people who we previously thought were good people and now it's like what the hell are they doing i mean lindsey graham i mean i don't even know if i ever thought he was great but he certainly was seemed like he had a lot of principles when he was with mccain and then suddenly he and when he was going up against trump suddenly right before yeah Yeah. but the other side to that is that the capacity for heroism can come from the most flawed of us and and the capacity to tell mm-hmm. the truth and mm-hmm. fight for truth can come from the most flawed among us. And you know, you're seeing that all around the world right now. You're seeing you're seeing a fight between those two poles. And I think one of the disservices the old kind of narratives from this time did for us, you know, the 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 all the president's men's and the and the and the and um you know the Nixons and and JFKs and stuff like that is they're kind of so operatic and Wagnerian, you know, they make you think that, you know, the, the most, the best character in JFK and also the most unrealistic is Kevin Costner's character. He's just this mm-hmm. unbelievably good person <laughs> who's mm-hmm. fighting for the truth. And it mm-hmm. makes you feel you, I loved watching it. I love that movie, but it may, it gives you, but you just, don't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't show me how I can be that way. And that's why we asked the writers Hey, see the worst of yourself in these characters, mm. you know, and 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 maybe you can see how you can be a villain, you know, or how you don't think much of yourself, but you see how you can be a hero. Because I would I would speak out like Martha. So that's 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 what we're trying to do with this show. And it's maybe the- and and maybe these hearings will reveal something surprising about some of the people who we've come to know as very one one one-sided i mean it already is look at liz cheney you know that's a thing about Liz cheney wasn't part of the of the group i mean if you had like a john dean moment would be somebody in the inner circle who no no and of course john dean was trying to save his skin too we got yeah definitely and and also heroism can come from total selfish motives as it did with martha and john dean but like what I'm saying from with Liz Cheney is like, is there any is there for for, you know, dyed in the wool liberals like you and me, is there any one more execrable before this than Liz Cheney? I mean, Iraq war, all that. So like from the worst of us comes this. I mean, worst among us yeah. from a certain perspective mm-hmm. comes this. She She's not doing this for any like she's not getting anything out of this. She's doing it because it's the truth. It's the fucking truth. And like, she, she just can't, 
she can't stop herself from doing that. And, and, mm -hmm. and Mitt Romney is the same way. I mean, uh, all of this complicity versus heroism stock, there's a great essay by Ann Applebaum from the Atlanta history. Yeah, she's amazing. She's amazing. And it's called history will judge the complicit. And I gave it to each writer when we were first in the room, because it's just talking about modes of complicity and why the complicit do these things and why people who tell the truth speak out and, and, and why that happens. And it's, you know, people who are complicit are very, it's very relatable why they're doing it. If, if you try to relate it to little things in your life, it's very relatable. Because mm. they're not seeing the big picture either. None of these people thought they were going to destroy people's trust in the government. They just thought they were doing what everybody else does. And that'll get me ahead. And, you know, nobody's nobody's looking with a with a you know, rear view of history. They're, they're all in history making it. Out of curiosity, what was the point in your life that made you turn away from movement conservatism? I was very religious when I was very young and I was very religious when I was like, um, probably seven to 11 or 12. I still am in my own way, very religious. Um, but I really, I really believed in the beauty of the Bible and the beauty of the story, um, and the beauty and forgiveness and, you know, empathy for the poor and, you know, uh, empathy for the weak and all that stuff and love and all that. And I, uh, when I found out what a, when I was very young and I found out what, um, a, bu a bunch of people at church were saying, uh, I don't, think I can say it, but it's the F word for a game. You can person. say it. Oh, oh yeah. Don't say and it. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I thought you meant fun. A bunch okay. of people at church were saying faggot. And I thought it was I just see. calling somebody stupid because right. they were saying it so hatefully. And then I mm. found out what it was. I think it was like 10 or 11. Mm. And uh, I found I I just found out that it was two guys loving each other and thought <laughs> this is going to sound so corny, but I thought Jesus would would want that whatever makes people mm -hmm. and i think it started breaking open a new way of seeing world the world to me i had the same kind of eye opening with abortion finding out mm -hmm. what abortion was i think abortion is a form of forgiveness and mercy um and i think it's mm -hmm. kind of a divine thing um and and then my big my big awakening my the biggest punk rock to me when i was a kid this is also going to sound uh, strange. The biggest punk rock star to me when I was a kid was Hillary Clinton. Because this woman came along and everybody, all my mom's friends called her a socialist. And all my my mom hated her and all my mom's friends hated her. And so I just, I just fell in love with her. I loved Hillary Clinton. And it's ironic that, you know, she ran in 2016 as kind of a sellout centrist or whatever she did. I mean, to me as a kid, all you heard was Hillary Clinton's a communist, Hillary Clinton's a socialist. She's so far to the left. She's such a leftist, this and that. Mm -hmm. So I've always thought of her as kind of punk rock Hillary. She, wow. It was a big awakening for me. I was like, I'm going to choose Hillary over my mom when I was probably 13 or 14. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. a real moment of self-definition, huh? But I, but I was still in love with Nixon, so I was still halfway on my mom's side. Wow, that's <laughs> great. 
Well, thanks for coming on the wrap up and talking about your show and fascinating. I could talk to you for a lot more time to kind of plumb the depths here because there's a lot going on. Yeah, you live <laughs> my dream life living in working in Washington. I've only been to Washington, D.C. once. I, I come I'm once kind of, in your life once. when I was in eighth grade and I'm kind of scared of going again. I'm supposed to go again next week. But I'm kind of scared of going again because I've always written like the Washington in my head. And I kind of think, um, uh, you know, when one part of the charm of watching like the Royal Tenenbaums is you're watching like the vision of New York from a kid who grew up in Houston. You right. know, and so mm -hmm. when I write about Washington, I like to think I'm writing kind of like dis like a fantasy version of D.C. that 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 is romantic to me. And and I kind of think, you know, maybe if I go there, it'll ruin a little bit of that romance. But I'm going. So wait, I'm going what's, and what's what's the reason you're going finally after all? We're the screening time? for the 50th anniversary of the break in. We're screening at the Watergate. So I'm very excited. Oh. I know I, I I'm so I, look, I'm so excited. It's 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 very exciting for me to have made this show. It's my dream. It's been my dream for a while to make this show. It's so personal to me. And it's a real big honor that you guys have covered it. And, and it's great to be talking to you now. Oh, same. How interesting. Well, congratulations on the show. I really am enjoying watching it. It's called Gaslit. It's on stars. Everybody should check it out. Robbie, thanks for coming on the show. It's absolutely a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Sharon. Pleasure to meet you too. All right, everyone in Hollywood is talking about the shocking firing of Disney's head of TV content, Peter Rice. Uh, Rice is regarded as a successful executive. He just signed a new contract last year, but CEO Bob Chapek fired him summarily on Wednesday. Uh, joining us to talk about this sudden move is the rap senior TV reporter, Brandon Katz, who has been covering this story uh, very well all day long. Welcome, Brandon. Hey, thanks Scott, for having me, guys. Hey, Brandon, welcome. So let's let's get into this. Um, Peter Rice has been a very successful executive and he's, and he's navigated tons of regime changes, whether it was at Fox, uh, and now when Fox was acquired by Disney and he was really regarded as one of the winners in that transition, you know, not every Murdoch made it over to the, to Disney and stayed at the company. And, um, you know, when Bob Chapek was in the running for CEO, uh, along with Kevin Mayer and, uh, Peter Rice's name was up there. And his units, which is the producing of TV content, were actually doing very well. So what do we think is behind this sudden off with his head? Yeah, I mean, not to mix studios, but this is a chess move straight out of the Queen's Gambit for Chapek, who really seems to be attempting to eliminate potential rivals and challenges for, challenges for his throne amid a, a tumultuous last 10 months, you know. He's had the ill-advised public spat with Scarlett Johansson, the mishandling right. of Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill, in which, you know, he first preached silence, drawing immediate backlash from inside and outside the company. And then when he did make a comment, it obviously draw, drew a lot of opposition from Republican lawmakers in Florida, turning him into kind of this PR punching bag. So he has had a, a consistent mix of roadblocks, stumbles, and obstacles. And as the Disney share price continues to tank in 2022, he is eliminating all potential threats to his throne to consolidate power and really secure his position. 
I mean, it certainly looks that way. And then there was this weird thing that the that the board, the Disney board, issued a statement right like right after Peter Rice's um, ouster was announced and Dana Walden's elevation to his position was announced going on about how it was pretty, it was a brief statement, but it was still very unusual that the board would bother to say that they stand behind Bob Chapek and he's doing a great job. Yeah, it was a bit odd and out of character for Disney to release such a rapid response statement after such an unexpected, shocking firing. And not to speculate too much, but, you know, Susan Arnold was uh, appointed to that chairman role uh, after Bob Iger left. So, you know, it does seem as if he is a, uh, that Chappick is a massing, a kind of wall of loyal lieutenants that would also include Kareem Daniel, who's head right. of a lot of content over there. It seems like he has a certain, you know, moat of protection given the loyalty he, he's, he's put in place in key executive here's, positions. Here's what's interesting because I've talked to a lot of executives myself today. Um, Peter Rice was known, by the way, he's a very savvy player, and he was really careful to not do or say anything that would allow Chapik to think that he was either disloyal or disgruntled, because when Peter Rice came on board, he was given all of television content, which was not just programming, it was his own um, P&L to run, by which I mean it was basically his business to run. So after that happened, the whole structure at, at Disney was reorganized so that all the business decisions in terms of what kinds of budgeting you get, where you spend your money, what's the target goals, all were taken away from Peter Rice and given to this guy, Kareem Daniel, who runs this unit now called DMED. And I remember talking to people around Peter or whatever and saying, you must be very unhappy that this huge amount of power was taken away from Oh, no, no, he's happy. He's super happy. He loves it. He loves doing programming, his hearts and programming, uh, content, the green lighting stuff, reading scripts. That's where my heart is. So I think he really made a big effort because he wasn't on Chapek's team to begin with, right? He's not like part of, and Chapek doesn't really have much of a team, and that's sort of what I'm noticing is like the iceberg he's standing on is getting smaller. <laughs> you know, the people around him who he really can trust. Mm. Rice clearly thought he had insulated himself well enough to avoid such a blindsided ouster such as this. And clearly Chapek yeah. still viewed him as a threat. He was probably too good at his job. And, you know, as he's in a vulnerable position, like you said, the ice is shrinking from, from under his feet and he doesn't reverse this stock trend anytime soon with something uh, dramatic, he's going to have to answer some serious questions to the board. But without a quality, viable heir apparent waiting in the wings, he's made it a little bit more difficult for the board to remove him in doing this. Right, exactly. I, I think that's, that, that's right. And But when you look at that stock chart, man, you know, to have dis the Disney board issue a statement talking about how how what a great job Bob Chapik is doing, and you look at that, and you and you juxtapose that to the stock chart. It's like if you're a shareholder, you might be like, uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you remember he reoriented the company around streaming early in his tenure, and the stock price has continued to fall over the last 10, 11 months. So his entire strategy needs to obviously be tweaked. The great Netflix correction is causing a reevaluation of this great emphasis on direct-to-consumer initiative across the entire industry, and, and no one is immune. So 
it, it's a bit curious to see, even as Disney Plus continues to grow, even as the uh, theatrical right. movie theater business gets better and parks demand is through the roof. But he's got to do something to save his own self. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah we got, should point out. Yeah, go ahead, Adam. Go. Well, I was going to say we've got Lightyear coming up, which is the th the first Pixar film to hit theatrical, uh, get a theatrical release since 2020. Mm -hmm. So this will be a big test of their staying power. You know, we were just talking about: is there going to be a Top Gun Maverick effect? Can Disney still get people in theaters for this stuff because they've yeah. relegated most of Pixar's library to Disney Plus over the past two years? Yeah, that's right. And the other thing is, we should point out as part of like the drama <laughs> is that Chapik's contract is up in less than a year. And it is quite curious that he's not been renewed yet. Yeah. I mean, you see this across industries, whether it's sports with head coaches or the entertainment industry, nobody likes to be in a lame duck year with only less than a year remaining. Usually if the company or franchise or whatever have you has confidence in the long-term leadership, they extend you ahead of that. So you're not in that awkward exactly. situation. So exactly. very telling that that is not yet to happen. Yeah. If you were to bet Brandon as to whether Bob Chapik will be here in a year from now as CEO or not, even though we're not in the business of predictions, just <laughs> curious, we're not going to hold you to those. I'm just curious what you think. I would say no. I mean, listen, things are firing on all cylinders to a certain degree at Disney, like we've talked about you know, theatrical box office returning parks demand is huge. Disney Plus keeps growing easy, even as Netflix loses subscribers, right. which was right. a huge industry-wide worry. So with things going well, with money pouring in and the share price still dropping, investors losing confidence and these repeated PR blunders that Chapek finds himself in, I would right. lean no that we're probably going to get ready for new Disney leadership in the nearest future. Yeah, I think I, I probably would take that bet with you on your side of, side of the ledger. And I noticed, and other people pointed out to me today, that when he put out his statement to the staff about elevating Dana Walden, it was very over the top. It just was super effusive, went on and on about what she's contributed and what she's done. And there is no doubt Dana Walden is a fantastic executive. I mean, I, I love her. I think she's just super pro and she's got great taste and she has she's incredible discipline in what she does. Uh, there's a reason why she's had the staying power that she's had for as long as she's had both first at Fox and now uh, at, at uh, Disney television. But it just felt like unseemly. There's something about the way Bob Chapek seems to have a tin ear, it seems to me, for how things land. And that question of, I'm just going to call it emotional in, intelligence, EQ, you know, they call it. Um, you can't not have that as the CEO of an entertainment company. And as, as sharp a business mind as everyone says he is, and I'm sure he is, that piece he continues to demonstrate is missing. And I don't know that that is sustainable at an entertainment company. Yeah, Dana yeah. Walden comments. Sorry, continue, Adam. No, go ahead. I was just saying, as Dana Walden comments, uh, though deserving, seem like the flip side of his Scarlett Johansson uh, comments, where exactly. far too much in the opposite direction. Exactly. Instead of commenting on a right. public disagreement, he insulted talent. And here, I think, in this handling and how he's ousted Peter Wright, you're, in, to a degree, alienating executive talent, which is quite important, as well as the on-screen talent. So it, it seems like Right. He does not care as much and doesn't place as much of an emphasis on relationships as his predecessor. 
-hmm. predecessors. I mean, I'd also argue Eisner was was better with talent, better with content, better with what they're actually putting. And it seems like JPEG has made clear from day one, he doesn't necessarily care about the content. He's a business guy. And that's just not translating for a company like Disney. Mm -hmm. Doesn't seem okay. like data, uh, uh, Disney is a great fit for a purely data business, bottom line driven uh, approach, particularly given uh, the fact that Disney out of every single major studio is probably the number one in brand power. They have a very distinct, significant and identifiable emotional brand that doesn't gel with a, you know, matter of fact approach 100% of the time. Yeah. Well, we'll keep watching the story. So we have Brandon's prediction on Bob Shapik. <laughs> so we'll check in on that from time to time. Checking a year from today. And, you know, and I wonder where Peter Rice might go. There's fewer and fewer jobs out there. He's spent uh, 33 years at, you know, a single company because Fox then became part of Disney. That's a very long time. I don't know if he would be inclined to go back to Fox um, or how that would play. He's certainly not a right winger as far as I know by any stretch. But there was a long time where the division between the Fox Entertainment executives lived coexisted but uncomfortably with Fox News, whether people are ready to go back to a company that is so driven by that ideological news cable cable channel. I don't, I don't know if that if that matters or not to, to someone like Peter, but that's one place where he could go. I'm so curious if things continue going badly for Netflix and Bella Baharia, you know, is, is on the chopping block. Maybe he goes there. Who knows? Well, that would, that's pretty interesting. I, I don't know if, um, you know, if Bella Bajaria ends up not staying, it, it's to, to your point, Brandon, you know, no executive wants to go somewhere where they feel like they have to be judged within 12 months of every, you know, every, people have to be judged by their performance, but you can be judged and not fired also. You know, they don't, Netflix is not a place that gives you a whole lot of latitude. And I don't know, you know, when Netflix was flying high and, and had, so much brand power and was the, the place everyone wanted to beat, maybe they could get away with that. But I think that that does hurt them in recruiting top people going at, at from this moment where they stand right now. My two cents. I don't know. Um, all right, Brandon, thanks for coming on this really, really interesting story. And we are enjoying reading your coverage, some of which I got to participate in, which was fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the assist. Thank yeah, you so much. Talk soon. Bye. And that is it for the latest episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all of our listeners. And remember to please follow or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. See you next time.